Father, we gather to hear from you this morning. Father, so easy for us to listen to the news or listen to the spouse or listen to our coworkers. So many people are speaking into our lives. But I pray that you would calm our spirits, calm our minds, that we might listen to you this morning. And Father, I pray that you would instruct both our minds and our hearts, that we would know the glory of the gospel, that we would know what it means to be free from our sins. And that would be pressed down into our hearts, and we would believe it with deep conviction and would live our lives in light of it. So may the Spirit of God use the Word of God to impact the people of God this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, What has been will be, and what has been done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, do you understand the book of Revelation was written in the midst of persecution? Because it's written during the time of Emperor Domitian, who was a wicked and worldly, arrogant and crazy man. For example, he felt totally free to marry other men's wives, which he did several times over. He felt totally free to order his brother, who was suffering from a strange disease, to die uncared for. He felt totally free to bury people alive for behaving in ways that he just didn't like. He felt totally free to kill people for making little jokes, commenting on his stature, his person, or his behavior, because apparently he was a strange-looking man with a protruding belly, spindly legs, and very little hair. But he'd kill you just for making a joke. Obviously, Domitian was a wicked man, and yet he insisted, he insisted that people address him as either Lord or God. And you think our government is bad. Imagine living in a world ruled by a man like this who seduces people's wives, leaves brothers to die, kills people for making jokes, and demands you consider him divine. The book of Revelation was written in that context. But as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Have you heard about what's going on in Afghanistan with the Taliban? They're targeting pastors. Literally going door to door to find them, to arrest them, and to prosecute them. So Christians being persecuted by wicked and worldly, arrogant and crazy people with divinity complexes who think they can kill anyone and everyone who disagrees with them. Do you see the connection? There's nothing new under the sun. What has been will be, and what has been done will be done. So I want you to know right, after the, right off the bat that Revelation was written in the context of persecution. So John's words to the churches are extremely helpful. They're extremely applicable to us this morning. 
Now, we might not be facing the same kinds of persecution, but that doesn't mean that we're facing no persecution at all. Haven't you ever had family members resent your presence, even if you haven't said anything, just because they know what you believe? Haven't you ever been accused of being judgmental or narrow-minded or arrogant or self-righteous, intolerant or bigoted? Just because you're a Christian, just because you believe there's only one way to be reconciled to a holy God, and that's through faith in Christ. We are being persecuted. And therefore, John's words are applicable because he's going to call us to be people, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of difficulty, who consider themselves beyond the shadow of a doubt blessed and praise God for his abundant goodness. And why is that? Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. This morning, reason number 11, because Jesus came to free us from our sins. Past, present, and future. So he frees us from sin's penalty, that's justification. He frees us from sin's power, that's sanctification. And one day, by God's grace, ultimately he will free us from sin's presence. That's glorification. So John's going to argue that being freed from sin is so much better than being freed from persecution or difficulty because Jesus is better. Jesus is infinitely better. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation is on page 1,028 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. encourage you to grab my outline as well. Three points this morning, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the praise of Jesus Christ, and the response to Jesus Christ. Allow me to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. John says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom Praise to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty.
Now, the opening words of Revelation tell us exactly what this is, this book is about, and what it's not about. Because John says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means it's not the revelation of John or anyone else. So John's not revealing himself to us because he knows that's of no use whatsoever. Instead, he's revealing Jesus to us. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book reveals him, makes him known, exposes who he is and what he's done. And it helps us know how things will ultimately turn out in the end and therefore how we, res- how we should respond to him, to Jesus, now, even in the midst of cataclysmic events that occur at the end of the age when good finally triumphs over evil. So verse 1 makes it clear. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it's also, A, the testimony of John, because John is writing it. But just look at verses 1 and 2 again to see how that specifically takes place. Fascinating. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, gave to Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he, Jesus, made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ, even to all that he saw. Are you catching the chain of events that are going on here? There's at least five parties that are involved in this process, starting with number one, God. God who gave the revelation to number two, Jesus, who gave it to number three, the angels who revealed it to number four, John, who wrote it down, confirmed it to be true, validated and verified everything he said, even all that he saw, and then he hands it, number five, to servants of God and servants of Christ. You're thinking, great. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it solidifies just how important this book really is. And it solidifies just how likely you are to read it, to listen to it, and to keep it. Let me prove that to you by asking this question. Do you read every single letter that's sent to your house with the same level of interest, zeal, excitement, and frequency? How about the piles of credit card letters inviting you to open a new account? How about the letters asking you to quote a new roof or new siding? How about letters trying to recruit your kid away to some no-name college in Timbuktu? I, I have piles of them daily at my house. Do you seriously read those letters with the exact same excitement as you do letters from your longtime friends? No, you chuck them in the trash like everybody else. But the letters you stare at, the letters you read with joy and study every detail and description, those letters come from people you care about or they come from people of great importance. Those you save, those you stare at, those you read over and over and over and over again. Now make the connection. 
Revelation 1.1 says this book came from God himself. And God didn't just give it to anyone. No, he gave it to his son. He gave it to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who revealed it to Jesus' beloved disciple, John. And John tells us, verse 2, that he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John solidifies that everything written in this book, including the things that he saw, was true. Absolutely true. Now what does that mean for you and me? It means we can trust it. It means we can take it to the bank. We can stake our lives on it and we can live according to it. Knowing with great clarity and conviction that it will never ever let us down. You understand how important that is? To know without reservation that that this book is the Word of God. Because it solidifies just how important it is and just how likely you are to read it and to keep it. Now look at what John says in verse 3. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Now, why did I labor in my introduction to tell you the specific context in which John is writing this letter? Because I want you to appreciate the significance of this statement. John's testimony is what got him exiled to Patmos in the first place, right? So he evidently thought it was more blessed to proclaim the word of Revelation than to avoid suffering, than to avoid difficulty, than to avoid persecution. But it's not just a blessing to those who read the word, but number two, to those who hear the word. So John also believes that you'd be more blessed to gather as the people of God to hear the word of God than to avoid the persecution it would no doubt cause for you to gather in the first place, especially in the context of this letter. Gatherings of Christians under Domitian absolutely 100% resulted in persecution. I mean, do you understand? People were burned at the stake in order to light up dinner parties. They were thrown into the Colosseum and forced to run around with animal skins on their backs until they were chased down by wild animals and killed. Now again, just think about that. Because the only way John could possibly say that it's better to hear the word of God than to be persecuted is if he was totally convinced that Christianity is better. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number eleven, to free us from our sins. So freedom from sin is better than freedom from persecution. You hear what I'm saying? John weighed. John measured. John concluded. Jesus is better. And John was not alone. In his commentary on Revelation, Jim Hamilton records a letter written to a man named Diognetus, but it speaks to how Christians lived in the second century. It says they loved everyone, and yet by everyone they were persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they glory in their dishonor. They are slandered, 
yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, and yet when they are punished, they rejoice as if brought to life. And so, here's the conclusion. Christians, when punished daily, increase more and more. Don't miss the connection. These Christians lived in such a way where it was crystal clear that freedom from sin was better than freedom from persecution or difficulty or heartache. Essentially, Jesus was better. Here's my question for you this morning. Is knowing Jesus better than whatever difficulty is going on in your life? Is Jesus better than avoiding heartache or persecution? Is knowing Jesus better than having money? Is knowing Jesus better than worldly fame? Is knowing Jesus better than having new cars or new clothes or keeping up an image that matches the culture? Is knowing Jesus better than denying Jesus so that people like you? Don't ostracize you. Don't call you judgmental, narrow-minded, self-righteous, intolerant, or bigoted. Is knowing Jesus better than doing evil to avoid persecution from the government? Here's the glory of Christianity. When the people of God actually live in real and practical ways, demonstrating beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is better, infinitely better than all of these other things, people will want to know him as well. Christians, when punished daily, increased more and more. That's my question for you. Is Jesus better than all these things? Which brings us to number three, the blessing of revelation to those who keep the word. Because John totally expected that the book of Revelation would cause these dear believers to live radically different. Because there's an obvious progression, isn't there? First the word is proclaimed, then the word is heard, and then finally the word is obeyed. It's kept, it's followed, it's a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. So John intended the persecuted members of these lowly and insignificant churches to feel the reality that they are truly blessed. That they would actually feel that, that they're blessed in spite of the fact that they are at odds with the reigning culture of the Roman Empire. So in spite of of the hostility. And why again are they blessed? Why would they feel so blessed? Because Jesus came to free them from their sin. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It reveals not only the person of Christ and the work of Christ, but the awful judgment that is coming on all those who stand against God and reject the Lord Jesus. So number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now number two, the praise of Jesus Christ. If you would follow along as I read again, verses four to six. Verse four says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First thing I want you to see is A, how the focus is clearly on Jesus, highlighting both his person and his work. But that doesn't mean it's exclusively about him. No, not at all. In fact, the Trinity is listed here. Notice how the progression goes from God the Father to God the Spirit and then to God the Son. Why is that? Well, because the focus is on Jesus. John saved the best for last. But look at what he says. Grace to you and peace from him. Who's the him? It's him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. But the grace John wishes on these churches is not from God the Father alone. Instead, John continues by saying, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Obviously, there's debate over this phrase, but everyone I've read says it's a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary, says the number seven stands for that which is full, perfect, and complete. So John is writing to seven literal churches, but they represent churches throughout all of history. Likewise, grace and peace is being offered from the seven spirits, so this is the full, perfect, and complete Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who energizes and equips the universal church so they have everything they need sufficient for every assignment, every challenge, for the spirit who lives in us is the same spirit before the throne of God. So the Trinity is clearly in view. God the Father who was and is and who is to come. God the Spirit who is before the throne always interceding for God's people. And then verse 5, the focus shifts. Focus shifts deliberately to God the Son. John says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Do you see how John's highlighting, number one, the person of Christ, and then number two, the work of Christ? He lists three things about who Jesus is before he lists three things about what Jesus has done. Verse five, three things are listed. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the ruler of kings. That's who he is. But then John moves on to the work of Christ, and you see it in the three verbs he uses. He says, to him who loves us, and to him who freed us from our sins, and verse 6, to him who made us a kingdom, priests to God. So the focus is on Jesus, both the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Let's quickly walk through who Jesus is. First thing John says, he's the faithful witness. So in contrast, to all the false witnesses or fake witnesses, Jesus is the perfect declaration of all that is holy and righteous and good. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So he's a faithful witness. But he's also the firstborn of the dead. 
which is obviously a reference to his death, burial, and resurrection. But as we'll see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he put on a new glorified body, which he promises to every single person who believes in him. And he's the ruler of kings. So no matter how powerful Domitian is or any other government ruler or authority, Jesus will call them to account. And why is that? Because Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the world. He's God in the flesh, king of kings and Lord of lords. How helpful for us to be reminded of that on a daily basis. He ultimately rules and reigns over all things. Nothing happens outside of his will which has everything to do with his work. Meaning the person of Christ is directly related to the work of Christ. Because he has to be God in the flesh in order to save us from our sins. But look at the progression John gives. He says, to him who loves us. Notice how that's in the present tense meaning it's not a once and done, but an ongoing and forever. So Jesus loves his people, which causes him, motivates him, and inspires him to lay down his life. As we'll see next week, John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. And I willingly, joyfully, voluntarily lay down my life for the sheep. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. What exactly did he accomplish in laying down his life? Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number 11, right here it is, to free us from our sins by his blood and to make us a kingdom, priest to God, which notice immediately results in doxological praise to him, To the Lord Jesus Christ be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. More on that in a moment. But with that, I want to transition to be the freedom from sin. Use the remainder of our time to focus on this glorious reality because it's by the blood of Christ that we have freedom from sin. So his substitutionary death on the cross is what frees us from sin. But as you'll see in my outline, it frees us in three different ways. Number one, it frees us from sin's penalty. That's justification. Number two, it frees us from sin's power. That's sanctification. And number three, it frees us ultimately from sin's presence. That's glorification. That's being with God in his presence for all eternity. Number one, freed from sin's penalty. Now as we jump in, my guess is that this is the one you're most likely to think about when you hear freed from our sins. But it's worth separating from the others because the blood of Jesus frees us from our sins in the sense that his death specifically pays the penalty that our sins rightly and justly deserve. Which means that Jesus' death was a penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, by definition, means penalty. So when we sin, we're ultimately sinning against an infinitely holy God. So when you get angry with your kids, 
or you make the bad decision to lie to the government, or you take something that doesn't belong to you. Yes, you're sinning against that person, against that organization, but ultimately you're sinning against the God who commanded you, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. So you're ultimately sinning against God. That's why David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, speaking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Be clear, our sin is ultimately against a holy God. And that sin, even the smallest, the tiniest, the littlest white lie is deserving of an infinitely horrific eternal penalty. And why is that? Well, because Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death, but also because you've sinned against an infinitely holy God who is perfect in all of his ways, without blemish, blameless, and morally righteous. So we're ultimately deserving of the penalty of eternal damnation. And you have to be clear on that point. You have to be crystal clear, perfectly clear on that point in order to glory in the reality that Jesus freed us from sin's penalty. How does he do that? By being our substitute. So he takes our place. He pays our debt. And he atones for our sin. Meaning his death is not just a good example, but it accomplishes something. It literally assuages God's wrath. So Jesus endures God's judgment in our place so we can be reconciled back to God and in a right relationship. That's what it means to be justified. It's a right relationship when we stand before an infinitely holy God. And just think about all the different ways in which we sing about these glorious truths in the hymns that we sing here on a regular basis. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He paid the penalty. He washes me clean. White as snow. How about this one? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Meaning, I bear the penalty no more. Jesus takes it upon himself, and he willingly pays it. He pays the penalty I rightly owed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O oh my soul. Here's my favorite. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon, with his blood. Response. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full 
atonement. Can it be? Yes. Yes, it can. How? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Do you see how that's the only appropriate response to being freed from sin's penalty? Hallelujah. What a Savior to the Lord Jesus who willingly, joyfully, and voluntarily paid the penalty for our sin. But what I want to be clear here, because even though there's a universal offer of salvation, that does not mean that salvation is universal. Meaning if you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then he has not yet paid your penalty. Instead, that debt is still on you. It's on your bill. And you are going to have to pay it. That's what hell is all about. It's you paying for your sins for all eternity. So here's the question. Have you really, truly, sincerely put your faith in Christ? Have you repented? Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in Christ and His finished work on the cross? Have you committed your life wholeheartedly to Him? Have you counted the cost and decided that even if I was given the whole world, if that meant I'd have to forfeit my soul, not worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Right? This is Mark 8. Count the cost. If you could put anything you wanted in this hand, all that the world would offer you, career, money, fame, fortune, whatever you want, whatever is so needed in your heart, count the cost. You have it. But it means forfeiting your soul. Is it worth it? No. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything the world could offer. If that's you this morning, if you're saying amen, then hallelujah. What a Savior. But if that's not you, then I appeal to you to call on the name of the Lord Jesus right now, today, while it's clear in your mind that you might be saved. Otherwise, you pay that penalty. It's still on you. Trust in Christ today because only his blood can, number one, free you from sin's penalty. But not only does Jesus' blood free us from the penalty of sin, it also, number two, frees us from the power of sin, which we see right here in verse 6 when John says, and made us a kingdom, made us priests to his God. That statement, made us a kingdom, points to the fact that we now belong to the Lord Jesus. We belong to King Jesus, which means our obligation is no longer to the prince of the power, the heir, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 namely Satan, but instead we've been transferred into the kingdom, the new kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son. We have a new king. Think about that king, a kind king. We have a gracious king. We have a benevolent king, a king who has graciously given us the gift of his spirit, which is essential because his spirit empowers us to put sin to death 
to keep his commandments, to walk in righteousness, and to live gloriously different than the world around us. So the blood of Jesus frees us from lust and greed. It frees us from pride and anger. It frees us from idolatry and impurity. It frees us from strife and sexual immorality and every other enslaving sin known to man. Clearest place to see this is in Romans 6. If you would, go ahead and flip to Romans 6. It's on page 942 if you're using one of our Bibles. As you're turning, I want you to know that verses 1 to 6 are all in the indicative tense, meaning they're telling us who we are in Jesus. Verses 1 to 11 are all telling us who we are in Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 1. Look at what it says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you hear all the identity language? Believers are united with Christ. Their identity is in Christ. So these verses are telling us who we are as believers in Christ. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here it is. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when our faith is in Christ, we're given the gift of the Spirit, and we're no longer enslaved to our sin, but given power. We're given real power, resurrection power, in order to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. That's why Paul says in verse 12, look at verse 12, therefore, in light of who you are in Jesus, verses 1 to 11, therefore, let not sin reign or rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. How can we do that, Paul? For or because sin will have no dominion over you. No power, no rule, no reign, no authority since you are not under law but under grace. Do you hear what Paul's saying? The blood of Jesus frees people from sin's power. So sin no longer has authority over your life. It can no longer say to you, jump, and you respond, how high? Because you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus and you've been given the Spirit. So you have power. You have real power to walk in newness of life. You have power, real power to walk in righteousness. You have power, real power to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Just like we sing. 
He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Sin's power has been broken in the believer's life. And now you're free. You're free to walk in righteousness. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How about you this morning? Here's a question. Do you know this freedom? Do you know what it looks like? Have you experienced the power of saying no to sins that have plagued your life for years and saying yes to righteousness, to behavior that you know is holy and righteous and good? Do you have the power to obey God's commands? Or are they burdensome to you? I appeal to you to have the courage to evaluate your own life. Jesus says, Matthew 7, that good trees bear good fruit. Why? Why do they bear good fruit? Because they have the power to bear good fruit. And bad trees bear bad fruit. Why? Because they don't. They don't have that power. They're enslaved to their sin and therefore can only bear sinful fruit. Let me also ask, dear believer, You have power. Do you know that you have that power? Gospel power, Holy Spirit power, resurrection power. I appeal to you, don't be afraid to put that power to the test. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, you have real power to walk in newness of life. I appeal to you to do so. Put sin to death. Walk in newness of life. Walk in a manner that brings glory and honor and praise to the Lord Jesus. You've been freed from the penalty of sin. You've also been freed from the power of sin. And ultimately, one day, Lord willing, someday soon, we'll be free from the presence of sin. If you would, go ahead and flip back to Revelation. But this time, flip to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. We will get back to Revelation 1. Revelation 20. Look at what John says in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a judgment coming. This is a picture of the final judgment when all things are going to be made right. Absolutely everyone will be judged, each one according to what they have done, specifically what they have done with Jesus. 
And those who reject Christ and his glorious offer, 12 reasons Jesus came to die, reason 11, to free you from your sins, those who reject that glorious offer will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will experience eternal damnation, weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. But to those who believe, to those who believe in Jesus, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness reigns and sin is no more. Look at how John continues, Revelation 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, he saw all these things. He's testifying that they were true. That's Revelation 1. He saw it. This is true. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Doesn't that sound glorious? No more sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. How is that possible? Because there's no more sin. Not in the new creation. It's even better than the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were allowed to sin but not in the new heavens and the new earth. Nope, no more sin. Which means righteousness reigns. No more broken relationships. No more broken bodies. No more broken promises. No broken hearts, no broken homes, no broken happiness. Verse 5 says God is making all things new. Isn't that incredible? Just to think about. Nothing will be old. Nothing will be broken. Nothing will be wrong or wicked, sick, or sore. New, holy, righteous, good, loving, kind, right, perfect, and eternal. How should we respond to these things? Wrong question. I think the better question is, how should we respond to Jesus? Number three, the response to Jesus Christ. If you would flip back to Revelation 1. We'll tie things up here. Verse 5, John says to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Two things I want you to see as we close. The first, the warning of Jesus. The second, the worship of Jesus. A, the warning of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Jesus is coming back. Verse 1 says, the time is near. That's a warning to any one of you who are sitting here this morning saying, or thinking at least in your mind, yeah, Pastor Steve, I hear what you're saying, but I've got time. If that's the thought in your mind, I've got time. My plan is to live it up while I'm still young and then figure out all these things later. I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I used to think that way. But I'm curious, how do you know? How do you know for sure without question that you've got time? How do you know that? I have a friend, just died, graduated high school together. The word in the obituary was he died suddenly, unexpectedly, age 45. How do you know? How do you know that you've got time? How do you know that? Did God call you? Did God send you a message? Did you get a status update from heaven telling you what the update is on birth dates and death dates? Do you know that? You don't know squat. You're just proud. That's the plain truth of it. You do not know your death date. Even if you did, how do you know when Jesus is coming back? The Bible says not even the Son of God has that kind of information. Please listen to me. You don't know your death date. You don't know when he's coming back. Listen to me. He is coming. He was. And he is. And he is to come. He's coming back. Heed the warning. Jesus is coming back. Dear believer, it will be a terrifying thing for you to fall into the hands of the living God. I appeal to you to not be foolish this morning. Jesus is coming back. So respond to Jesus today and glory in the offer he's making to you this morning to free you from your sins. Not only sin's penalty, so you can stand justified in his presence, but sin's power, so you can start putting sin to death in your life and walking in righteousness, meaning real change, real transformation, real power that results in real fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. 
and the promise that one day you will be freed ultimately from the presence of sin. And for that, Jesus is worthy of our glory and our honor and our praise. Be the worship of Jesus, which looks like something. I would suggest that it looks like something each and every day of our lives. So not just on Sundays, but every day. In fact, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year of our lives. Worship of Jesus impacts every single moment of our lives which can be summed up in that simple little phrase, Jesus is better. Let me ask again, how about you this morning? Is Jesus better than anything else in your life? Is he better than money? Is he better than fame? Is he better than stuff? New cars, new clothes, whatever it looks like to keep up your image with the, with the culture? Is he better than all your little creature comforts? Is he better than air conditioning? Is he better than vacations? Is he better than watching television? Is knowing Jesus better than denying Jesus so that people like you, don't ostracize you, don't call you judgmental, narrow-minded, self-righteous, intolerant, or bigoted? Is Jesus better than all those things? And does your life, your calendar, your bank account, your decisions back up that statement each and every day? Now, of course, they don't. Not perfectly. But the question is really, are you moving in that direction? Because when the people of God live in real and practical ways, demonstrating beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is better, infinitely better. Others will want to know him as well. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number 11, to free us from our sins. May that glorious truth motivate us on a daily basis to live knowing that Jesus is better. Let me pray. Father, we live in a world filled with competing affections. Father, we just come and confess the reality that on so many days we live as if something else is better. And I pray that you would be doing a good work. Father, instruct our minds that we would glory in the reality that we have been freed from sin's penalty. We have been freed from sin's power and by God's grace one day we will be freed from sin's presence. Father, help us to weigh and to measure and to think and contemplate. If I was given absolutely anything and everything that the world has to offer, would I want that if it meant forfeiting my soul? Or is Jesus better? Oh Lord, do a good work. 
in our minds and in our hearts that we would know with great clarity, deep conviction, and growing courage that Jesus is better. Help us to live like that for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.